Investors Chronicle. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor at the Investors Chronicle. And today I'm joined by Simon Barnard, investment manager on the Smithson Investment Trust. For those who don't know it, uh, Smithson is a vehicle run by the team behind Fundsmith Equity. Uh, it has a focus on companies that, in their words, have already won. Uh, for example, they may have a dominant market share in a certain niche. They may have brands or patents that others would find impossible to replicate. Unlike Fundsmith Equity, however, it focuses on stocks in the small and mid-cap universe. Uh, it has a focus on companies with a market capitalization of between 500 million and 15 billion pounds. It launched back in October 2018. And like many, a growth-focused fund, it has delivered some really enormous returns in recent years, but did take quite a big hit in the sell-off that we witnessed in 2022. That's now reflected in a share price discount to NAV that came to around 11% at the time of recording. So Simon, thanks for, for coming on. How are you doing? Uh, good, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. Lots of interesting things to discuss about the fund. You, you know, run a pretty concentrated fund. Um, if we look at the end of August, had 34 holdings. You're very much kind of, you know, bottom up focused uh, rather than macro. But like, I suppose, every professional investor in recent times, um, you've probably found it impossible to ignore those big macro factors, what's going on. Uh, and a big part of that, of course, has been uh, inflation and then the consequent rise that we've seen and continue to see with interest rates. So I suppose to start off, it'd just be interesting to hear, you know, what does that era mean for the portfolio? How are you positioning and kind of what are you looking for in companies now? Hmm. Well, I guess the short answer would be not an awful lot has changed. But to elaborate... Um, ultimately, we stick to the same strategy, which is to buy excellent companies that can survive market cycles. So that doesn't change depending on the interest rate environment. I think what has affected us a lot is the transition from a very low rate environment to now a, a, an environment around 5%. And that has obviously reset a lot of valuations across the market, including those companies in our portfolio. But in terms of the fundamentals of our companies, uh, not much has changed. The one area I would say that we have started looking more uh, intensely and have actually added a couple of names to the portfolio are those companies which we call our serial acquirers. So they're very decentralized companies with a lot of subsidiaries, um, and they tend to bolt on several small subsidiaries every year. Now, the reason that they're doing slightly better in this environment is with the lower asset prices in general, they are finding better bargains out there to acquire. And also, because we tend to buy companies with strong balance sheets, they're finding they're able to buy these companies uh, mostly funded out of their own cash flow rather than taking on a lot of debt, which actually a lot of their competitors, which tend to be private equity companies, uh, use a lot of debt to buy the companies. So they're finding that they're in a better competitive position when bidding for these companies too. So I suppose you've already touched on one element of that with kind of debt, but of course, we're seeing a lot of acquisition activity, I suppose, across the whole equity space at the minute, given the valuations you mentioned. What would you look for if you were attempting to assess whether something is a good acquisition or, or you know, not a particularly wise one? 
uh, I think there are two main aspects. One, does it really fit with the strategy of the group that we already own? And number two, of course, is price and the resultant returns on capital that we expect from that deal. Um, far too often, we've seen uh, companies invest in businesses which are at a great tangent to what they already own in an attempt to find new areas or sources of growth. And we have found with those companies that we've ended up selling them out of the portfolio simply because we found that we didn't agree with the management's decision on that allocation of capital into those new acquisitions. Um, so that's important. We've also been frustrated with some companies that have spent too much on acquisitions. One company in particular is Ansys. This is a US software company that we used to own. And over the past five years, it's spent nearly $600 million a year on acquisitions, which uh, we discovered were on companies which have very little revenue and no profit whatsoever. So extremely expensive acquisitions. Um, and ultimately, we got fed, with, fed up with that and sold it out of the portfolio. Mm. And I suppose turning to the portfolio more broadly, I mean, we'll we'll discuss at length some of your kind of individual holdings. But I suppose with kind of Fundsmith Equity and Smithson, a lot of onus is put on the kind of process. It's meant to be, you know, you can replicate it if someone leaves and so on. Um, as part of that process, what kind of metrics are you looking for? And if we look at those metrics, kind of how are they kind of holding up now in this, I suppose, very kind of uncertain time? Well, the process is very simple and it's identical to the Fundsmith Equity Fund. Um, and it's, it's a three-step process, which is we buy good companies, we try to not overpay for those companies, and then perhaps the hardest bit is we say we do nothing. Um, that is to say that we look to own these companies for five to ten years and allow these good companies to grow their free cash flow and compound in value while we own them. Now, the metrics then that we focus on are really around how good a company it is. And the key metrics for us is the return on invested capital. So that's the pretext profits that they're generating uh, compared to the invested capital that they put into the business already. And for us, on average, across the portfolio, that number is around a 40%. So that's extremely high. When you compare it to our reference index, which is the MSCI Small and Mid-Cap World Index, the average company there has a return on investor capital of about 11%, so far higher than the average company in the index. So that's the core metric we look at. Uh, we also want to own companies that grow over time. And when we say growth, we talk about cash flow. We are very focused on the cash produced by each of these companies. And again, when we look at uh, the growth in that cash flow, interestingly, it has been a little bit more challenging over the past couple of years, despite the fact that all of our companies pretty much have grown revenue and most of them have grown profit. The cash has been a little more challenging because of the disruptions in supply chains caused by the pandemic. So as we'll all know, over 2020 and 2021, many supply chains for companies were disrupted where they simply couldn't get uh, restocking of their inventories. So during that period, many of our companies actually ran down their inventory, which looks very positive for cash flow because you're generating a lot of cash from your inventory that you've already stocked up previously. And so you're actually, in most cases, generating more cash than you are profits. But over the last 12 months, that flipped around. So once those supply chains had been rebuilt, our companies were able to use those to restock their inventories and therefore start investing cash back into their working capital positions, which meant on the face of it, it last year, despite the fact they were growing revenue and profit, their free cash flow was actually going backwards. 
funnily enough, year to date, that again is normalizing so that the free cash, what we call the free cash flow conversion, the amount of cash they produce relative to their earnings has ticked up again, simply as things are normalizing. Mm. And I, I suppose looking at kind of other ways in which companies are, I suppose, kind of reacting to events, um, how is the portfolio held up in terms of, you know, there's, there's been such an onus in the last year or so on kind of pricing power and passing on those kind of that greater burden to your customers. Um, are there kind of good instances you're finding of that kind of being successful and equally, are there any kind of parts of the portfolio where that's something you're still perhaps keeping an eye on? Yes. The vast majority of our companies are in the fortunate position, which is why we chose them, of being in a very strong competitive environment. That is to say that they are tend to be the strongest competitors in their marketplace, which enables them to easily put up price and still uh, receive their fair share of demand, if not more. The other good point about our companies is that on average, they have a gross margin of 65%. So that's the margin between selling something and the cost it make it and the cost for just making that item. And with a high gross margin, it means that ultimately their costs for making the item are relatively small. So as inflation hits, that uh, inflationary effect on their smaller cost base means that our companies have to put up prices by less than other companies in the industry, which may have a higher cost to make something and therefore a lower gross margin in the first place. So they have the, the two benefits. They can easily put up price and they don't have to put up price as much as others in the first place. So when we look across our portfolio, some that have put up price and actually, and I don't think they set out to do this, but of course the, the timing is often difficult in terms of putting up your price in the face of inflation. But some companies have actually improved their margin over this period by putting up price more than they saw in cost inflation. One company that springs to mind is Montclair, the luxury company. Um, and then on the flip side, there have been actually very few companies that have suffered in terms of margin purely on that cost and pricing issue. But one I would highlight is Fever Tree. Mm. Um, and that's primarily because they've been growing very strongly in the US. So for example, in the last half year, they grew their US business by 40%. That's four zero percent um, And they didn't want to disrupt that momentum by putting up prices too much in the US. So they actually kept prices flat for a long time, while at the same time, as we all know, uh, the cost of inflation was impacting them. Plus, the cost of energy was feeding into glass costs, which greatly impacted them. And finally, they were shipping a lot of product over from Europe to serve that fast-growing US market. And so the very high freight rates during the pandemic was also affecting their costs. So um, that is the one that really sticks out to me that suffered on a margin basis because they didn't put up price. But actually in that case, and management still tell us it was their choice not to put up price rather than they were unable to. Yeah, interesting balancing act that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Fever Tree. That's, um, I suppose, one of your kind of UK-listed uh, holdings that... To me, it always seems quite divisive amongst investors. You know, some people find it to be such a, a, a market darling. They absolutely love it. Some people, I suppose, in earlier years thought it was perhaps a bit overhyped and that, you know, perhaps fed into a high valuation. And and that update you mentioned was quite interesting. You know, the company delivered its highest ever market share by value in the UK. You mentioned the US kind of sales boost, um, but also they cut their full year revenue guidance and you know they cited things like the vagaries of the British summer weather is, is a quote that kind of stands out to me. Um, 
what's your current kind of, I suppose, net outlook on, on Fever Tree? Um, is kind of now sort of a, a good time to be kind of getting into it or is there, is it still a bit kind of mixed? You're right that Fever Tree share price has been quite a roller coaster over the mm. past five years. Um, we actually only started buying it in 2019 and bought the majority of our position in 2020. So we were quite fortunate with the timing of that. Um, but looking forward, uh, you're right that they reduced revenue expectations for this year based partly on the UK weather, but also they are transitioning their distribution business in Australia from third party to in-house, which tends to disrupt sales whilst it's happening. Um, but it's quite interesting to observe that the share price went up on Tuesday when they announced that. And the reason for that is because I think that the market is starting to observe that a lot of the problems that we were just discussing is starting to be behind them. And as you look forward, this could well be a turning point in both their profitability uh, and margin. And so it means that from here on in, we have um, glass costs reducing. They are signing contracts as we speak that are much lower for next year than they were for this year. They have got bottling plants up and running in the US, which means that they will have to ship less product over from Europe. And finally, freight rates we know have pretty much almost normalised um, back to not quite the levels that we saw before, but well below the peaks that we saw during COVID. Uh, and so that too is benefiting that margin uh, coming out of the US. So as all of these progress over the next 18 months, I think that the margin there will improve dramatically. And so we are very optimistic from this point forward. Mm. You you mentioned earlier the, um, the kind of Fundsmith process um, and the focus on kind of not overpaying. And I believe Terry Smith has previously talked about the fact that, you know, in order to get into some of these great companies, sometimes you almost need to kind of buy when there is a bump in the rows. And I think instances in front of equity, I think of things like Microsoft, people used to see it as basket cases, perhaps a rude term, but, you know, not a kind of troubled business that's come good. And there's things like Meta. Is that also the case for Smithson? Do you have to kind of uh, capitalize on a bump in the road or would you kind of buy into something where the sailing does seem a bit smoother, but you just think there's more more room for, for improvement? It's both. I mean, the absolute ideal scenario is when you find a fantastic company that's had a glitch and you can get in at a very reasonable price because you're willing, as we are, to look out five or 10 years and see that this business can normalize. One good example of that for us is that we started buying Equifax, which is the US consumer credit company, uh, back in 2018, and it had just had an enormous uh, data breach. Um, and that really had a significant impact on the share price. But um, quite soon after that, management was changed and the new management made it its mission to um, clearly make that business as impenetrable as possible to, to cyber attacks and fix a few other things while they're at it, including its underlying technology. And so a lot of investment went into that company, but it's um, still proved to be an excellent time to have bought into the company. And it is uh, five years later, still one of our best performing companies. So that is the ideal situation. But of course, life isn't always like that. I mean, in general, it is very hard to find good companies. Um, with all our five years of searching, we have a list of about 87 companies that we choose from to make up the portfolio. Um, and so 
we have searched through thousands and thousands of companies to find that 87. So we do watch those and generally hope once in a while that we do get an opportunity. But it isn't, funnily enough, often the case that the company itself has had a glitch. It's more likely that the general market sentiment is low as it is today. And then we get an opportunity to buy what are very good companies still operating relatively seamlessly, but at an attractive price. Yeah, I mean, does your, this horrible jargon, but does your kind of opportunity set widen in in times like this? Uh, I note that last year, what was it, you had something like around, uh, was it 48% turnover thereabouts in the portfolio, which is um, very, very high given your your process, but perhaps reflects the, I suppose, the kind of changing environment that we we discussed earlier. Yes, I mean, we are extremely excited about the opportunities that we currently see around us today. And that is reflected in on our activity. So over the past uh, 12 to 18 months, we've acquired seven new companies, which for us is an enormous change. To put that into perspective, actually, in the we've been running for five years. In the four years previous, uh, there was a total of seven acquisitions across the whole four years. So that just puts into perspective how excited we are about what we are looking at. And that is also a function of the fact that we've tried very hard over the last 12 months to find more great companies. Um, And so last year was a difficult one for the entire market, but it did throw up a lot of opportunities for us simply because we redoubled our efforts to find them. Mm, yeah. What are some of the kind of interesting examples last year that you, you got into? Well, Montclair is one of them, and we've yeah. already mentioned that, um, and has already performed very well for us since buying it around the midpoint of last year. But we found some very interesting companies and have actually made a concerted effort to acquire companies that look very different to any that we already own. So one example of that is a consumer company called Oddity. It um produces cosmetics, which it sells direct to consumers. And it has um, over a billion data points in its database um, of about 40 million consumers. And it manages to acquire around 50 data points from every single user that it interacts with. It does this by offering them to take a quiz on its website whenever anyone signs up. um, So that, uh, for example, uh, in cosmetics, they can match their perfect color in terms of foundation or concealer, or they offer other skincare Um, products which they can work out you know what type of formulation a person might need these data points by the way also include selfies which um, i suspect many other even very large cosmetics companies don't manage to get from their customers and based on all of this data and selfies um, oddity are then able to create new products uh, which they can already see are in demand and then market them directly to the people that they know require them it's amazing to hear that selfies have become part of the uh, the corporate environment. Um, so I, I wanted to focus on um, a few more of your holdings. Um, you know, you own some names that will be, I think, very popular with some kind of individual investors. Um, and also perhaps like Fever Tree might cause a bit of, um, bit of debate. Uh, one of these is um, Domino's. Um, that I think has been kind of like a bit of a market darling over time. Um, but has certainly run into kind of some issues in recent years. There have been kind of disagreements with franchisees over things like kind of shouldering of of costs, Um, the Australian business, and we might want to explain the different entities perhaps as well. The the Australian business saw its shares tumble earlier this year when it said it was kind of struggling to pass on price rises. And how are things looking now for Domino's? What is your kind of 
um, you know, hold the course kind of case for for that business or those businesses? Yeah, so we have owned uh, two different Domino's businesses, one in Australia, as you mentioned, and one in the UK. So the UK version is called Domino's Pizza Group. Uh, We've actually recently sold out of Domino's Pizza Group for all the reasons that you decided. (laughs) So we have owned it for several years, but ultimately we have seen a revolving door of management. So I think during our course of ownership, we saw three CEOs, five CFOs, and several uh, middle management come and go. Um, combined with that, there were generally mediocre results, as you might expect, given that management turnover. And part of that is also down to a structural issue that you cited with uh, a franchisee disagreement. Um, so ultimately, we grew um, very disenchanted with that, along with the point that given all of the exciting opportunities that we are trying to take advantage of, um, we do need capital uh, to raise that and, and put it into the new areas. So we could not justify owning Domino's Pizza Group when we saw all of these exciting companies around us trading at the valuation multiples that we've been able to pick them up at. So it was a combination of those two factors, but that's the reason we sold out of Domino's Pizza Group. Yes, more more competition for space in the portfolio at the minute, I imagine. Um, a few other stocks perhaps we should touch on. You, you've mentioned Montclair. Um, that strikes me as an interesting name, just given, um, you know, if if we kind of wound back to, say, the start of this year, um, some people, including some of my colleagues, are very excited about the kind of the China reopening trade, which perhaps has been a bit underwhelming or maybe not as kind of tremendous as people expected. Um, you know, how how does Montclair look and what's the kind of, What's the rationale behind kind of sticking with that name? With respect to Montclair, I would say that actually the China reopening has been mixed. It hasn't Mm. been completely underwhelming. In fact, for Montclair in the latest quarter, their sales in Asia grew 39%. I mean, it's actually has been a continued boost for them this year. And we put this down to the fact that people in China are still spending on certain items and particularly on those items that were less available to them during their lockdowns. And I think going into stores such as Montclair with the experience that you get and trying on the the garments, um, that was far less available to them during lockdown than, say, buying cosmetics online, which they could do throughout. So that's why we've seen certain areas of the market like cosmetics not do so well and certain areas of the market like luxury, particularly high-end luxury, uh, do better. And generally, we've seen high-end luxury do better across the world because if you think about it, the cost of living crisis affects far less those very wealthy people who tend to be able to afford high-end luxury. Now, that is not to say that our luxury companies are going to not experience any slowdown in growth. I think even very rich people uh, are not completely tone deaf. And I think, you know, these people still don't want to be driving around in a brand new Rolls Royce or wearing a brand new Montclair jacket where no one else can afford their heating bill. So I think they do have some sense in that respect. But the important thing is that the affordability is still there. So the day that that changes, they can step in and start spending again. Whereas I think for other consumer goods where those customers are struggling a little more with the cost of living or the price of the items, it will take a while for those consumers to rebuild their balance sheets and get out there and start spending again. And so even when the pressure subsides, it still may take a while for them to recover. Yeah. And how much um, exposure more broadly do you have to 
the consumer? Because I guess that's one of the um, characteristics, in, in my mind at least, of, of the Fundsmith Equity Fund. They tend to have, you know, both the kind of more luxury end and the more kind of consumer staples. People still brush their teeth in a recession type type holdings. Yes, we're a little different insofar as there are very few consumer staples names available to us. Because if you think about it, many of the big brands that we see out there are either um, very large in their own right or part of a much bigger conglomerate. So for us in the smaller mid-cap space, there are very few consumer staples companies that we would want to own. Um, so for us, our only consumer exposure is Montclair, Oddity and Fevertree, actually. But in Instead, we own far more industrial type businesses because there are a lot more niche uh, industrial businesses that are growing very quickly in areas where they generate strong margins because of their competitive dominance um, and can continue growing quickly over time. Whereas if you think very large industrial businesses tend to grow with global GDP, which is not particularly exciting. And mm. um, sticking with, I suppose, the idea of kind of uh, sentiment and how people are feeling about the economy. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about um, Rightmove, another one of the the kind of names from the portfolio. Um, this morning, I was reading the FT. Uh, UK estate agents are apparently the gloomiest in fourteen years as house prices and sales, you know, continue to fall. So, how do you now feel about uh, Rightmove in that kind of perhaps uh, slightly depressing context? Yes, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the business model of Rightmove. Mm. So the way that they generate revenue is through subscriptions from estate agents. So they get a monthly subscription from an estate agent independent of how many houses that agent sells and at what price that agent sells. That subscription is relatively fixed. So in the short term, whatever the housing market does, Rightmove revenue is relatively unaffected. Now, what can happen, of course, is that if the housing market gets bad enough, estate agents go out of business and they stop paying the subscriptions. And that, of course, then does start to affect Rightmove. And I think in 2009, Rightmove revenue was down about 9% because of that very fact. But actually, the growth at Rightmove continues to be fairly healthy. So the last results we saw from Rightmove, their revenue was up 10%. And the way they grow that revenue is actually by upgrading those subscriptions for estate agents by offering them new and better digital products. So the general gist of it in the most simplest form is if you go you know, back to the very early days and you can say estate agents were initially offered black and white adverts and now they're offered color adverts and they charge more for the color adverts that's how they would increase the price or upgrade the subscription. But now, of course, it's a lot more complicated than that. So their latest uh, digital product that they are offering as an add-on to upsell to estate agents is a machine learning and AI-driven data product which allows estate agents to try to identify which house in their area is likely to come up for sale next using a lot of data that Rightmove can piece together from that household. And of course, that's incredibly important to the estate agent because the only way they make money is by actually winning um, the instruction to sell houses. So if they can now suddenly target a small area of houses where they think that the next house will come up for sale, that can be e extremely efficient marketing for them. Mm, very, very interesting. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, something we should discuss, um, that we've probably touched on is, you know, the idea of kind of slowdown and recession. Um, I would think perhaps with your process, your company should 
perhaps be more resilient. But are there any parts of the portfolio there that you would think um, perhaps look in a particularly good place for a recession? And are there any parts where you would, again, need to keep an eye on things and just make sure it is kind of holding up as well as you'd hoped? I mean, in general, because we own very high quality companies that tend to grow through the market cycle, uh, we find that the share prices do relatively well through uh, recessions in particular. Um, And also our companies are very strong in terms of their balance sheets. So we have almost no fear of them going bust. And again, we can uh, just watch them as they trade through the market cycle. However, you know, there are some industrial companies in our portfolio that if we were to go into a serious recession in the US in particular, uh, that would certainly hold back their revenue and profits. But again, because their balance sheets are so strong, we have no fear that they'll survive that downturn and come out stronger because they are already stronger than their competitors uh, come out stronger on the other side. So while it will be a case of watching these companies closely and, and obviously communicating with them a lot to understand exactly what is going on. We don't have any genuine fears about those companies should we enter a recession. Mm. What what would you say your more kind of cyclical holdings? Would it be things like Sabre or? Sabre's a tricky one. Um, Sabre is entirely dependent on the travel industry. About 90% of its revenue is generated by the number of travellers. So it is running uh, the software which acts as a backbone between travel buyers like travel agents or you and I buying off Expedia and travel sellers such as airlines and hotels. So clearly when people stop buying plane tickets, their revenue goes down. Now, through COVID, that was a disaster, of course, because their revenue went to almost zero. They do have some debt, which before the pandemic was not at all a problem. Once their revenues went to zero, it very quickly did become a problem. But they have done very well, I think, over the last couple of years in restructuring that and uh, and taking cost out of the business. So as we go forward, uh, depending on how the travel market grows, will have the uh, an enormous impact on how Sabre is able to manage. Now, so far, what we are seeing is a very strong resurgence in travel since COVID. Many people are labeling it revenge travel. Um, <laughs> and actually, leisure travel is now slightly above where it was in 2019. The only issue for Sabre is that corporate travel is still somewhat below, 30 to 40 percent below where it was pre-COVID. And that is the slightly more lucrative travel for most travel companies, actually. And so as time goes on, we are starting to see that corporate travel return gradually and with it, Sabre's uh, margins and free cash flow. But uh, it is that aspect of travel that we're most focused on. Now, historically, travel has been relatively sensitive to recession. But of course, whilst we're in this period of travel resurgence, it would be very hard to determine before it happens, how that's going to react to a recession should we go into it this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, More generally, investors will be kind of keeping a close eye on whatever they hold in these kind of very uncertain times. And, you know, a big question people will always ask is kind of, you know, when do I, do I stick with a company? And perhaps more importantly, when do I need to kind of sell out of a company? Um, one thing I was interested in asking you about was, um, I suppose, kind of red flags. So you mentioned with Domino's, you have the kind of revolving door of um, high level executives and so on. Uh, whether it's kind of stuff within the company or it's perhaps external factors, are there any particular things that would prompt you to quite seriously consider exiting a position? 
Yes, for us, the main red flag that we always look for is capital allocation. So all that we ever try to do is to find these great companies which we believe will sustain their very strong margins, returns and growth long into the future so that we can hold them for five to ten years and just watch them compound in value. Now, clearly, for them to sustain those returns and growth, we need the management team to be sensibly allocating the capital or the cash that they're generating um, as the business uh, continues so that they don't destroy that ability for the company to continue generating those great returns into the future. So that really is the topic we're most hot on and is the reason why we've sold many of the companies that we have in the past, um, simply because either the management teams have been trying to chase growth and investing in areas which either they were less familiar with or that was generally more competitive or was, we believed, set up for far lower returns than the core business was generating in the first place. I'll give you a couple of examples. One company was sold out of A.O. Smith, which is a U.S. boiler and heater manufacturer, has a fantastic business in its home market in the U.S. It is one of uh, a three uh, in an oligopoly. Um, it has great margins and returns in that business. Not so much growth, but there's a, a very strong replacement market for boilers in the U.S. Um, people might describe it as discretionary, but if your boiler ever breaks down, I think you'll very quickly realize it is not. However, to find more growth in for the group, they started investing quite heavily in China. Now, on the face of it, it could have been a good business because China clearly is a very large market and is growing fast as um, incomes for the middle classes is growing. However, it is also extremely competitive with a lot of domestic competitors who are quite clearly offering products at far lower prices. And so they've never really been able to generate the same returns that they uh, did in the US in China. They've also looked at other businesses like water treatment that they're also investing a lot in. Um, so for us, while we still like the core business, it was the fact that all of their additional capital was being invested in areas which we felt were much more competitive and therefore less likely to generate strong returns in the future and the reason that we eventually sold out of it. Yeah, very interesting. Um, finally, I just wanted to touch on the kind of fund itself. Um, people are, of course, incredibly familiar with Fundsmith Equity, um, biggest fund in the UK. But if they're thinking, you know, I, I really like what that fund does, I'm kind of interested in, you know, Smithson um, as another possible holding. What should they understand? What should they understand about the kind of differences between those two funds? Yes. Well, first of all, I mean, the similarity is that we follow exactly the same strategy and that hasn't changed since inception for either fund and it won't change in the future, whatever the market is doing in terms of interest rates or any other macro environment. But the differences are clear. I mean, we are very focused on much smaller companies, which will tend to suggest that over time the fund will be more volatile than the Fundsmith Equity Fund. That is because both funds hold a similar number of holdings, around 30 to 35 holdings. And so uh, because of the nature of smaller mid-cap being more volatile as companies, that will mean that the fund will generally tend to be more volatile than the Fundsmith Equity Fund. But on the flip side, the benefit of that, of course, is that the companies in Smithson will tend to grow their free cash flow slightly quicker than the large cap companies over time. So you're getting a, an offset for that increased volatility. 
And, and would you um, see yourself, you know, kind of running your winners to the extent that you end up holding large caps as well? Or would you have a kind of ceiling there? We would always run our winners. But the fact is that as companies get larger and larger, it becomes less likely that they are able to compete their way in with uh, the smaller, more faster growing companies that we can see at the lower end of our spectrum. So we will continue to own a company as it grows larger. I mean, the whole point is to own it while it compounds in value. Um, and we will continue to do so as long as it competes its way into the portfolio. Yeah. So it's that kind of natural selection within within the fund. Uh, well, that's all very interesting, but I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Um, so I'd just like to say thanks to Simon for coming on. And thank you to everyone for listening. Take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.